As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Welcome to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. My name is Jessica Barron. And I am a vice president of executive search here at Centennial Inc. And this podcast is dedicated to helping leaders reframe success in leadership. And we're very pleased that we have more than 10,000 listeners right now. So today we have a wonderful conversation. We're here with Megan Cummings, and she is the executive director of the Women's Fund of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation. And I've known Megan for quite a while, and it's been a delight to see all the important things that she's been contributing professionally and personally to our community. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Megan. And Megan, tell us a little bit about the Women's Fund and what that means. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jessica. We do go back a long time to my days in sea change, which I think was about 12 years ago. So we're dating ourselves. <laughs> so thanks for having me. It's a real honor. So yeah, I work at the Women's Fund and we're a fund within the Greater Cincinnati Foundation. And our job is really to lead the community on women's economic self-sufficiency issues. And there's a lot of great organizations in this space. But one thing that we concentrate on a little differently, we're a systems level organization. So what that means, instead of working with women one-on-one or doing job coaching, et cetera, job placement, We are really looking at the policies and practices in our community, and does that create a great environment for women to participate and prosper and reach their full potential? Now, are we talking about women who are vice presidents at major corporations? Well, we look at all women, of course, but our real focus is on women who are working, making between minimum wage and self-sufficient wage. So in that lower part of the economic, the socioeconomic levels in our community. And when we look at those women, you know, as a systems level organization, some of the things that affect them affect them in mass. So I'll give you an example. This is an analogy I love to use. If you live by a lake and you go out to the lake one morning and there's one fish washed up on shore, you might say something happened to that fish. That fish was old or it got bit by an animal or it had a disease or something happened to that fish. And you might try to solve that problem. But if you go out to the lake in the morning and there's a hundred fish washed up on shore or 500 fish washed up on shore, you wouldn't go through and say, I wonder what happened with this fish. And maybe this fish had a disease and maybe this fish was old, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would say something bigger is going on here. There's something wrong with the water. There's something wrong with the environment. And I think when we see disparate outcomes for women in our community or people of color in our community, it's something bigger than an individual issue. We really have to look at the water, per se, to see what's going on in a bigger way. So that's what the Women's Fund does. We really look at these issues from a broad community perspective and figure out why women aren't succeeding, not advancing on socioeconomic levels like others in our community. So that's a good segue. What is going on in our community? I know that you have done a lot of research into this and put in a lot of programs and fixes. How are we unique and what are some of the opportunities that we have? 
Well, first, I would say there's a lot of great organizations and community leaders working on these issues, which is very heartening um, to see a lot of business leaders as well. One of the problems that has gripped our community and has become quite urgent in the last few years is the child poverty issue in Cincinnati. So depending on the study, we're either second in the nation for children in poverty or sixth or, you know, it doesn't really matter what the number is. It's not consistent with who Cincinnati is, that we are a thriving city and we have this child poverty issue. So that's interesting. But when you dig deeper, it's not the kids who are in poverty, it's their families. And what we find is two out of three of those kids in Cincinnati who are living in poverty two-thirds of them live in a single female-headed household. So if we want to make any advancements in getting those kids out of poverty, we really have to look with what's going on with the moms. And what we see with that population is the majority of these moms are working, and not just working one job, and not only a few hours a week. Many of them are juggling multiple part-time jobs. Oftentimes, none of those jobs will have benefits which makes it a pretty precarious situation. We know that these women are disproportionately responsible for child care and elder care. We know that their transportation and child care arrangements are often precarious, and they're really just barely getting by each month. So that's kind of the situation we see ourselves in. And Our job as the Women's Fund is to understand those barriers they're facing and how we can start to remove those barriers at a more systems level. Because we know when we do that and those moms start to thrive, their kids start to thrive. And those are the kids in poverty that we really care about and want to uplift in our community. That, Megan, that sounds overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) It is. That's really a tall order. And I'm sure you do that with some support, the Greater Cincinnati Foundation, of course. What are some of the other organizations that you partner with? And if you could give me some examples, you know, people will remember a person and remember a story even more. Yeah, well, let me start with some of our partners first. So it's really important that it's not our team of six sitting in a conference room deciding what barriers are facing women in poverty in our community. That's just not how the work does. So we spend a lot of time talking to the women and co-creating solutions with the women in poverty and what would be helpful and what keeps you up at night and what are some of those things that we can work on day to day to help you. We also convene about 30 nonprofit partners several times a year. And these are nonprofits that are working in the women's space and in the poverty space to say, what are you seeing? What are your clients experiencing? Where do you think we can make the biggest momentum gains? So we are constantly checking in with them. And then we have a lot of other partners across the community that, you know, businesses that are interested in these issues, the Chamber of Commerce, I mean, so many different parts and elected officials, too, that we all have to be working in concert to make any meaningful change on this. So we spend a lot of time with those partners. You mentioned businesses. Why are businesses concerned about this? Yeah, businesses. This is a project we've done for probably the past two or three years. I'll give you a little bit of background. We were doing a project called Raise the Floor. It was in northern Kentucky. In Boone County, there's a lot of manufacturers in Boone County, and they were all trying desperately to fill their open positions. And we thought maybe there's an intervention here that we could get more women into these businesses. We got them trained through Gateway. We get them into these businesses and they weren't lasting. And it made us question, you know, what was going on? Why weren't they lasting in these businesses? 
So we asked the HR directors, are they trained appropriately? And they said, yes, they are some of our most trained employees we have. And I said, well, what happened? You know, why couldn't they last? And I said, well, you know, she missed several days of work in her first 90 days. And we have a policy where you really have to be there every day in those first 90 days to show you have commitment to the job. Well, what do you think was going on? Why did she miss time? Sick kids. So it was just interesting. We had this little light bulb go off that says, okay, a lot of companies have this 90-day probationary period. How can we still ensure that people have a commitment to their job, but maybe a little bit more flexibility in those kind of policies? So we talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of employers across the tri-state. And what we found is all the companies were struggling with the same three things, attraction, retention, and engagement of their employees, especially their lower wage employees. And in a tight labor market like it is right now, low unemployment should be a good thing, but it's really tough and it causes these turnover rates to go up and it causes a lot of churn at these companies. So we knew the companies were really struggling with these pain points. And then we paired that with our understanding of these lower wage workers and said, perhaps the Women's Fund could be a really helpful bridge between these pain points and the people. So we collected a lot of policies, made some recommendations, very concrete, actionable things, and put them in a toolkit. And what's the beautiful thing about this is it works for employees. It makes families healthier and more stable, and it improves your bottom line. It helps those retention numbers, and it helps those engagement numbers. So we love when we find that big win for business and families. It's like our favorite thing in the world. It seems so plain. It's right before our eyes. That's right. And it's hard to believe that as soon as you said she missed three days, as a woman, I know why she missed three days. Yeah. But it's not really women that are running the shop floor, is it? Right, right, exactly. And so let me give you an example of one of these policies. Again, it's like once you hear it, you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. So a lot of employers require a clean uniform to be worn to work. That seems like a very, you know, reasonable expectation of your employees. And for you or I, Jessica, that probably means putting a uniform in our washer and dryer that's in our home while we make dinner. And for a lot of low-wage employers, that's not their experience at all. That's a trip to the laundromat a couple times a week, depending on how many uniforms you have. That's time, money, transportation, childcare just to get that clean uniform. So we were having this conversation with an HR director at a local nursing home. And she said, yeah, of course, we require our patient aides to wear a clean uniform to work every day. And she said, we have laundry facilities on site for our residents. We never once thought about using them for our employees. And it just hit her like, this is something we could do that's almost a no-cost option. That could really help stabilize our workforce when we're dealing with a lot of really high turnover numbers. So the 40 recommendations in this toolkit are just like the example I just gave you. They're very actionable. Some are very little investment. Some are a bigger investment. But together, we think it will drastically reduce the turnover we see in these companies. It's pretty amazing. You mentioned that there was a special situation at the Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to tell this story. <laughs> so the Cincinnati Zoo has taken the toolkit and dog-eared every page of it. They are trailblazing employer in our region. We're so lucky to have them. 
There's a whole section of the toolkit that's about reimbursement policies, like tuition reimbursement. We think that's a good thing, but probably it's your higher level employees that are using tuition reimbursement to go back to school when your lower level employees, you know, don't have the money up front to do that. So that benefit is just not available to them. So Jeff, the HR director at the zoo, he was looking at that as far as their transportation at the zoo. The transportation in Avondale around the zoo is great. There's a lot of buses around there. That's wonderful. He knows a lot of their employees are taking the bus to work every day. And they were offering a reimbursement for a Zone 1 Metro Pass every month. And he looked to see how many employees were taking advantage of this reimbursement. And the number was very, very low, even though he knows a lot of his employees are taking the bus. So he went to an employee and he said, why aren't you taking advantage of this? This is great. And she said, I have $1.75 in the morning. I have $1.75 in the afternoon. I have $1.75 the next morning and the next afternoon. But never in my month do I have $70 all at once to buy that bus pass to be reimbursed. And he thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea that $70 was such a barrier. So he talked with Metro they negotiated a discounted rate so they could buy bulk Zone 1 bus passes. And he went back to that employee and he said, here's your bus pass you can have at the beginning of the month now. And she cried. She said, you have no idea what this means. Not only can I get to work reliably every day and be a great worker for you, but I can get to the doctor's mm-hmm. office and the library and go grocery shopping and do all the other things I need to do throughout my month. Now, do you think she is going to leave the zoo for a 25 sent an hour raise somewhere else? Probably not, because they've taken the time to understand her needs and her family's needs. Mm-hmm. And that investment, it was simply shifting something they were going to reimburse at the end of the month to the beginning of the month. And I think in this tight labor market, you know, now that's a great thing that they can put out there on their job postings to say, this position comes with a zone mm-hmm. one bus pass. What kind of competitive advantage does that create for the zoo, especially in this tight labor market. So we're just really inspired by companies that are thinking about these things in new ways. Companies are so interested in diversity inclusion. And oftentimes we think first like gender inclusion and race and religion, et cetera. But I think our blind spot is socioeconomic inclusion. And that's really understanding the needs of your frontline employees. And we have a tendency to think about these large businesses and the tight labor market. These are the people providing services to individuals, That's right. to our children, to our parents, allowing professionals such as yourself and myself to actually be in the job market. And there are fixes. There are ways of looking at it. It's just a question of trying to ask the questions. I don't think that we can put ourselves in somebody else's shoes when we're clearly, you know, in an advantage situation. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that you can't ask. We have the responsibility to ask and not assume. That's why it's so important for the Women's Fund. You know, how do we co-create what policies we're going to work on and what research we're going to do? These aren't things that we should pull out of the sky Mm -hmm. with our, you know, middle-class values and just say, oh, this is interesting. It really takes listening to the community and co-creating with them in the most authentic way. And also, you know, 
this authenticity doesn't just important for the women we're working on behalf of, but how can we authentically listen to the concerns of the business community and what their pain points are and try to constructively problem solve around those as well? And when lightning strikes and you can knock out a bunch of those pain points across the board with one project, well, that's a good day. <laughs> that is a good day. <laughs> One of the things that I am always fascinated with is why people choose a certain path in their life. Yeah. Why you say, I think I'm going to run the Women's Fund or I'm going yeah. to lead. And you've been in the for-profit as well as the not-for-profit professional world. What do you think impacted your decision to be doing what you're doing today? Was it something in when you were younger? Was it a mentor, somebody or something? Yeah. So I'd have to say a lot of it started, well, I have great parents. And so that doesn't hurt. And growing up, we travel a lot. My mom worked for Delta. We're from mm-hmm. Cincinnati. It was a big part of our family, her working for Delta. So we got to travel a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think my parents were always very tuned in to wherever we traveled, wherever we were staying helping us understand how people really live in a place and not just what the shiny hotel looks like and what the resort looks like or anything that, but like, how do people live day to day in this country and where the country we're visiting? And so I think that was just really great exposure. And they instilled in me a lot of courage and confidence to travel and talk to people and meet people and That was really important. So I kind of continued that in college. I had two study abroad experiences at Miami University that I think just shaped my life. And hindsight's 20-20. You don't realize that at the time, what difference it's going to make. But now that I look back, I see the pieces coming together. So the first one was I was a political science major, and I studied the European Union in Europe for a whole summer. And not really great transferable skills to know a lot about the European Union right now in Cincinnati, but or even you know, <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, exactly. But it was really interesting because one of the things I loved about studying over there is how these policies at a really broad level end up impacting regular people's lives day to day and how much there a responsibility there is when formulating that policy to make sure it has the intended effect on what you're trying to do. So that kind of stuck with me. And the next summer I got to spend in Kenya. I am um, studied sub-Saharan education and I studied primary education in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was just struck by how wealth is relative. I met people that had nothing but had everything. They had everything. And so as I graduated from college, I started working in the nonprofit field. My sister is a nonprofit executive in Cincinnati at the Ronald McDonald House, Jennifer Gooden. And I saw what she did day to day and how she spoke and wrote and got people along with a cause for her. And I thought, gosh, that's stuff I love to do as well. So it just kind of set the stage. I was in nonprofit development for a while at a couple local agencies. I did fundraising for one site, which was a charity at Exotica Retail. So I was in the corporate environment, although in the nonprofit piece there. And then I had the opportunity to come to the Greater Cincinnati Foundation, which I, an anchor institution that I had admired for years and still pinching myself that, you know, I'm part of that team because it's just such a great team. And so came there in the Women's Fund and I came in as our development officer. And then a few years later, our executive director, Vanessa Freitag, took a different job and I had the opportunity to move into this role as executive director 
And I just love it. I learn something new every day. I learn different skill sets. Our team, developing our team is one of the most important things to our success. And I get to just meet with a lot of stakeholders from day to day and problem solve. And I really love that. Yeah, they obviously also love that because they support it. You have a program coming up that is a very serious program. It's tomorrow, and it's basically Mm. about invisible women. And I think that even though our listeners, the program will be over by the time you hear it, I think it's really important to highlight this. Why did you choose this program? And Yeah, the, the program tomorrow is about intimate partner violence and with the workplace. And it was really interesting. You know, we do all this work on economic self-sufficiency. And what we started to hear anecdotally a few years ago is as a woman gets ready to take a new job or finish a training program or somehow take the next step in her career, there's an uptick of domestic violence. And we were just gobsmacked with this. Like here we are trying to get women's mobility and remove barriers. And then there is this threat of violence because not everyone's happy that she's taking that next step up in her career. And a lot of women stay in abusive relationships because they don't have the money to get out. So imagine how threatening it must be to a partner when finally she's getting that money and becoming self-sufficient. So we see this uptick in domestic violence. Plenty of anecdotes, no research on it. So we worked with several community partners, including um, Partners for Competitive Workforce and others to research this issue. And a couple of partner agencies, including Cincinnati Works and Brighton Center and YWCA, started asking their clients through their job coaches at their organizations if they were experiencing this. And after the six-month data collection, there was a 40% incidence rate of women and men, actually, who had experienced intimate partner violence around their employment progression. And so we knew something more had to be done. So we engaged in a year-plus-long project with Design Impact, several local employers, some survivors locally, and to really prototype around what some interventions could look like. And that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. But for those of you who can't be at the event or have missed it since this has been recorded, it'll be on our website. And I'm sure it'll be a discussion that we'll have for many years Mm -hmm. to come because it's this hidden barrier that we just don't realize is there, people don't talk about, but is having a huge impact on our companies. Right. Not to mention everyone's lives. Yeah, Um, of course. Um, And It's the kinds of things that we prefer not to think or talk about. Right. So I really commend you and your organization for bringing that to light. Are you finding that business organizations are interested in that? Too early to tell. I think we'll know a lot more as this information starts getting in the community. Mm -hmm. Some of the early indications is like, oh, I don't think that's a problem. We don't hear about that. But when one of our partner organizations went back to their setting they actually found out about 75% of their frontline employees had experienced some kind of intimate partner violence. These are very low-wage women in our community. And so I think there was some drastic wake-up calls when we start talking about it and start uncovering it. And, you know, I think one thing that's really important, we shouldn't be scared of information. Even if it's bad information or unsettling or you know, changes the way we think of things. We should just receive that information. Like, I am so glad I know that now because once you know, you can do things differently. 
So I think this will be a big wake-up call for a lot of our businesses, and and I hope they approach it with an open mind and really explore whether this is going on in their own companies, because we're doing everything to you know make great workplace culture and maximize profits and deliver our mission if we're a nonprofit, and we should really be exploring all those things that are keeping us from reaching our full potential as an organization. And this might be one of those problems that's hiding in plain sight. I think you're right, and you've called them invisible women or invisible people. And I think that's really, it's critically important, of course. So tell me, are there other things that I should know about the Women's Fund that, you know, that you're working on that are impacting our community and our people? Sure. Well, I'd love to tell you about one other project we're working on right now called Appointed. And since we've been talking a lot about, you know, invisible women in our community, these are the invisible voices that aren't at our decision-making tables. So we hear a lot about needing more women on corporate boards and nonprofit boards, and that's really important. But we started to look at the representation of women on civic boards. So these are like (laughs) your zoning commission and your library board and all of these civic boards that are part of our local governments, whether it be at the city or the counties or even your township or other municipalities. And we wanted to see what kind of representation women had on these boards. And what we found out across the eight counties that we serve It's about just under 30% women on these civic boards and commissions. In one county we serve, women only comprise 6% of the board and commission seats in that county. 6%. We make up 50% of the population, but 6%. And these are volunteer. Yeah, they're volunteer boards, but for your municipality, for the city. And they're appointed by elected officials. Who and are male. Well, in male cases. <laughs> you said it, Jessica, not me. <laughs> so, One of the things when we talk about corporate boards, yeah. and it's moving a little bit farther away from our conversation, but, you know, a lot of women ask me, how can I get on a corporate board? And the truth is, people on their corporate boards, they feel comfortable with. Of course. Of and course. so if the board is primarily male, males are generally comfortable with other males. And if they play golf, they're comfortable with people who play golf. And so it's not always the apparent, you know, what we think is going on there. It has other things to do. So if most of the elected officials who are making these appointments are male, they're probably not even considering more women until it's brought to their attention. It's really a pipeline issue, as you say. And, you know, we've met with elected officials who have really embraced this project. And we have elected officials who are male who are really great at appointing diverse candidates Mm -hmm. across the board and women. So that's really wonderful. But what we heard from one person is like, we have so many appointments to make. We just kind of scroll through our LinkedIn profiles and see who we know. And we're all guilty of this. Our networks always look more similar to us than different, right? That's right. And so, if, they were, if we were making that appointment, it, it would look like same. our LinkedIn Exactly, purpose. exactly. So we thought there was an opportunity here to build a pipeline of candidates that usually aren't in the mix. So we launched Appointed, and it takes about five minutes to sign up. You can do it on our website. And you just put your name in the hat to be considered for appointments by these local, by these civic boards and commissions. and 
There's a few things that are important. One, we understand what areas you care about. So you can be on a board that you're really passionate about. And we also, in addition to your education experience and your professional credentials, of course, that's important. We also capture your lived experience. So if you are a person that relies on public transportation to get around our city every day, we think you have a lot to say about our public transportation in this area. If you're a stay-at-home mom that takes her kids to the park two times a week, guess what? We think you have a lot to say about our parks. So we're able to, through this application process, really embrace that lived experience that is so important to making effective decisions for our community that represent all the people in our community. And right now, we're just not seeing those types of candidates in the pipeline. So we've been encouraging women across the eight counties that we serve to take five minutes to sign up for appointed, cincinnatiwomensfund.org slash appointed, super easy. And then when we hear about vacancies, we send it out to, if there's a vacancy in Boone County, we send out to all the people in Boone County that kind of match those criteria. So they still apply with the municipality. And then it's kind of out of our hands. Of course, it's up to the elected official to make the final decision. But we're just, we're kind of an e-harmony for <laughs> civic boards. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and dating service. Yeah, exactly. That. And we have mm-hmm. about 400 women signed up already. And we just launched this in May. So Our goal with this project is to dramatically increase the number of women and specifically women of color on local civic boards and commissions, because we know when we have boards and commissions that represent all the viewpoints in our community, they make better decisions. And it's really about having a responsive, effective government. Well, one of the things, if you're looking for people who use public transportation, you probably ought to encourage them to have the meeting somewhere where they can get there. Exactly. Public (laughs) transportation. That's right. That's the the second phase of this, Jessica. It really is. Like, how can we also work with local governments to make sure their appointment process is more accessible, but also that their meetings are more accessible and get more people to the table? Because we make better decisions when all the viewpoints are at the table. No doubt about it. That's awesome. That's very exciting. Well, I have just learned so much from you today. I always learn so much when I talk to you. So thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for having me on. This is wonderful. And all the wonderful things that are happening in our community. I really feel like this is a model for others to be thinking about. Just think about what you don't normally think about. That's right. You know, you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, we do have a really unfortunate childhood poverty level here. And it's always shocking to think about how many people care. Well, we have to do things a little differently because what we were doing before obviously was not working. Yeah, and we right. all own that. And we love Cincinnati. And we're yeah. problem solvers. We have grit in Cincinnati. This is a thriving city. And I think when we can live up to our full potential, mm-hmm. that we're going to be unstoppable. And this is a lesson for other communities as well. Of course. You know, because it's not unique to Cincinnati, but it is something that Cincinnati can lead the way on. So it's wonderful. So here I am, Jessica Barron, Vice President of Executive Search here at Centennial. And we've been talking to Megan Cummins, who is the Executive Director of the Women's Fund of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation. They're doing amazing, amazing work here in the community, serving as a beacon for other communities as well. And we know that people are listening to this podcast, not just in Cincinnati, but in other places as well. And that's great. So So thank you for coming to speak to us. Thanks for having me. And we're looking forward to moving that needle. Thanks. 
thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. By now, you've probably heard of servant leadership. But did you know it's been proven to improve company culture, customer service, and reduce turnover on teams? Find out if your actions pass the servant leadership test at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash SL. That's talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash SL. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.